What a moment for the Republic of Ireland. They just knew how to get the wins and that was it. So I don't mind seeing a team like that because I quite like a fighting team. The Koi Gig Pod on Off The Ball. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Hello and welcome back to Off The Ball. I'm Kathleen McNamee and I'm here to take you through the day's sport. Uh, and I am now very lucky to be joined for the Sunday paper review by Irish Independent columnist Roy Curtis and Irish Daily Mail sports editor Orla McElroy. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Kathleen. I think we were getting half the conversations we're hopefully going to have in, on air over the next little while in, in, during the ad break and the news there. Um, lots of stories across the paper today. Unsurprisingly, leading most of the front pages is that win for Manchester City against Manchester United. Uh, the Sunday Times have gone with seeing double Manchester City one match from treble as Gundogan scores twice to steal FA Cup win. The Observer has two down, one to go. Uh, actually, Sunday Independence is kind of one of the few things that does have um, Manchester City on the front page but the big picture on it is Clifford's rebel yell champions get back to winning ways and an image of David Clifford celebrating after scoring a controversial penalty uh, yesterday uh, in their win against Cork we were hearing from both managers there a little bit earlier on uh, the Sunday Mirror Sport gun stoppable after Ilke Gundogan's two goals there uh, the Sun Sport gun 2-3 Pep only the treble can make us complete and a picture of an emotional Pep Guardiola I was saying earlier to the lads, I was kind of surprised at how emotional Guardiola was after yesterday. I thought he would be kind of saving up those emotions for next week in the Champions League when they actually get the, the treble if they do manage to be I, I think that. maybe the uh, the pressure cooker's building up and he needed to let some stuff out ahead of next <laughs> week. He'll... Um, He'll be an interesting case study, I'd say, over the next five or six days. Oh, yeah, definitely. There is a tomb to be written about him <laughs> someday. And I, I hope someone gets it and they're able to like properly interview him and the people around him about these years because it'd be amazing to know what's been going on in his brain. Uh, here we have the Irish Mail on Sunday. One more to go, Haaland. So that was Haaland saying yesterday that they still had one more to go. He was cheering that into the crowd after the win. And the Sunday World Sport, Top Gun, there may be treble ahead as Gundogan's brace Fire City to FA Cup glory against old rivals. I think that one's my favourite out of all of them. That's very good. <laughs> um, I might as well start with just a little bit of chat around that since it is dominating all the back pages. There is a bit of a assumption at this stage that the treble is going to happen. But as John Duggan was pointing out earlier, you know, there is still a match to be played and with City's record in the Champions League it's hard to know you know will they actually be able to deal with the mental pressure you, like you were saying with Pep Guardiola letting go a bit of those emotions what would it mean for the City team to I suppose get that final notch that they need I think it's a defining week for Guardiola obviously it's been well documented that he hasn't won a Champions League without Messi despite having extraordinary resources at both at both Munich and Manchester and he has, until this week or this last couple of weeks, always stepped away from the significance of the Champions League and pointed out that they'd won so many league titles, so many FA Cups, that their legacy was secure, regardless of what happened um, in Europe. But he changed his tone yesterday in the aftermath of the game. It was really, really interesting where he said, we have to win this. These guys will never get the credit they deserve <coughs> as a team unless we win this. And it's almost like he was tortured in the past. He made tactical changes that seemed illogical, a genius overthinking almost. 
that he looks like he's taking a more straightforward approach to this and saying, I'm going to put the best team I have out there. I'm not going to come up with any wild tactics. And if we perform, we'll win and we need to win. He's saying the players should feel pressure. It's logical to feel pressure because this is the defining moment. And if you look at the way they've played recently, particularly the way they dismantled Real Madrid, it's really difficult to see them not winning next week. Yeah, it is. And especially, like, as you say, that every other time Guardiola has gotten to this stage, you're looking at the team he's putting out or the formations he's doing, and you're like, did did he disappear for a while and someone else took over? Because it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And I think with the momentum that they've had in the final uh, like couple of games in the season and also that FA Cup yesterday, like I do think there was a part of Guardiola somewhere who saw the fact that, yes, Manchester United are nowhere near the class of City, but the whole idea of that Eric Ten Hag was it going to be able to say to them, well, like, look, you don't want City matching your record. You don't want them taking that. And then also we're one of the final things that can stop Guardiola getting this big treble that is the defining moment of his career. I can kind of understand how maybe in Guardiola's head that, you know, yesterday was more of a stumbling block to achieving his hopes and dreams and maybe next weekend might mm. be. Like yesterday has just become a means to an end. It's it's almost not about the trophy. Nobody kind of worried about the trophy. United wanted to win it because they wanted to stop the treble. And City wanted to win it because it's just number two and now we can move on to number three. And I love like they've absolutely dropped all pretense of you know we're not worried about this and you know it's just a, about the process or anything like yeah. that. It's, not, it's literally you know we, if we don't do it we're missing something forever. You know it's that's what it's all about. We've done incredible seasons but we have to win the Champions League to be recognised like the team deserves to be recognised. As Roy said he knows that's what it's all about and the pressure is going to be Immense. incredible. You it's, can't it, imagine how bad it's going to be this week. Isn't it extraordinary in a time of PR spin where every potential bomb is diffused in advance anything that might stir controversy that Guardiola is walking head on into this and saying this yeah. storm is coming and we've got to be able to deal with it and I really think he's learned from his own behaviour in the past that trying to distract from it, trying to play it down, clearly hasn't worked. Mm. To say to these players, high achievers, huge competitors, this is your moment, go and seize it. And what's the point in him pretending? What's Everybody the point knows. in him putting a bit of thought into how am I going to, you know, You can't play deny this it down? at this stage because exactly. everyone knows. Of course not. And it would look ridiculous if he did attempt to try it. So at least he's kind of going, yeah, we know this is all that matters and we're going to give it everything. Yeah, and he's talked about it for so long as being like defining for him. So if he was to turn around now and be like, oh no, we don't care. We're, we're, we're taking things easy. It's all going to be fine. You'd be like, mm, I wonder what you do in a week like this. Like, you know, you've just won the FA Cup. So obviously you have that little bit of a high and then you have the anticipation goal going in you know I'd love to get into like all the sports psychologist heads that are working with these city players this week and you know how do you approach maybe like a Haaland compared to a Jack Grealish and adjusting what those players need uh, one of the players that is mentioned of course across all the pages is Gundogan uh, after those two incredible strikes yesterday from him 12 seconds in for the first goal which is the fastest ever goal uh, I hadn't even sat down by the time this goal was scored <laughs> yeah. and between that and the Women's Champions League as well which also had a goal in the opening couple of minutes I was like this is going I'm in for a goal fest I don't know which one I'm supposed to be paying more attention to um, but yeah Gundogan he's an interesting one because he's been so pivotal to City this season but there's still that question mark over his future and you know can Pep said yesterday that you know they're trying their best to hold on to him rumours are that he's going to go to Barcelona if he can't uh, sort things out with City but he was the hero yesterday he's um, he's a very atypical superstar 
Barney Rone, um, Guardian Observer writer, who has a magnificent turn of phrase, um, spoke about Gundogan's contribution generally. I actually just took down a couple of notes. He said, um, they completed the double here with a couple of moments of routine mid-30s brilliance from a footballer who looks less like a visitor from the footballing future, more like a cuddly pirate. Footballers don't generally look like this. Footballers are snake-hipped super-athletes, all tensile strength and elite power-to-weight ratios. Gundogan is small and slightly rotund. He doesn't have a football haircut or a footballer's look of fierce, hungry focus. He seems to be thinking about things, scurries about the place like the the old family Labrador who knows how to open the back door and bring you your favourite jumper when you feel bad. (laughs) I think it's an absolutely magnificent description. Um, But he is clearly a cerebral player rather than athletic player. And uh, Guardiola spoke yesterday about... They've lived as neighbours. Um, he was Guardiola's first signing and they've lived as neighbours for seven years. And it was remarkable to hear Guardiola describe him as a very good friend. Um, you don't normally hear that in a, in a relationship between manager Especially and Especially at this player. stage. You know, sometimes exactly. it comes out afterwards. But yeah. at this stage, and I, I think they've all talked about him as a, a future coach, the, the latest following in the Arteta line to, to work with Guardiola and then move to the sideline. And I think there's still a possibility he might stay if he's given an extension on his contract, but it's sort of policy to maybe only offer a year. And if he won the Champions League, stepping away to Barcelona might be the next move. But he's never been one of the guys that you first focus on. But then when you look back at the body of City's work, he's always a key figure. And if you look at guys that didn't even get on the pitch yesterday, like Riyad Mahrez, an absolutely magnificent player. And I know they're not like-for-like players, but Gundogan is always in the side for the big games. And I think that, as much as anything, speaks of his absolute central importance to everything they've achieved. Mm, I'd actually forgotten that he was uh, Guardiola's first signing Mm. when he arrived, that he'd actually been there for the entire Guardiola project until I was reading about it in the papers today. And as you say, like... He's just a name that's always there, even if it is the sort of game where maybe City can afford to relax some of their players. He still seems pretty central to the way they set up and the way that they play. And somebody who's probably like he's that type of player who's appreciated more looking back, really, isn't he? Than very much than you know you do at the time. So yeah, well, that's the thing you kind of think that there would be a massive cohort of City fans that should he leave this summer, and as he said, it does look pretty likely that that's going to happen will have wanted to have given them maybe a proper send-off and the only way they can really do that now is if they win the Champions League because obviously then they'll have their open-top buses and, I don't know, Pep will be out cheering and throwing things into the crowd as we've seen him done in other times whereas they're not going to do that this week and with the no. FA Cup no. because they have such a big thing to come. In terms of like a player like that, obviously we've seen City and they're so good at recruitment and obviously they have the money to be so good at cr- recruitment but the fact that you can't come to some sort of agreement with a player who has given so much to the club and who has been such a regular you know you're not talking about someone that Guardiola is putting out to pasture by any means is it not worth fighting a bit harder than City seem to have been for the player you would think it is entirely he is he's shown himself to be so pivotally scored too as well in the in the league deciding game he's he's a central figure he's Guardiola's primary lieutenant on the pitch almost Guardiola's brains on the pitch De Bruyne is a beautiful, creative, powerful footballer and Haaland obviously is this Norse divinity but Gundogan is the guy, the glue almost who keeps everything together. Money is obviously no object. City have bought the Premier League, bought their dominance. No one can, no one can hide from that fact. 
I still find them hugely attractive to watch, understanding the sports watching, washing and despising what it stands for. The actual aesthetic on the pitch, you can't but enjoy it if you like football. You can you can despair at what it represents. Mm. Um, and Gundogan, I think, is a really central player in that. Some players, ones who don't often make headlines, their greatness is only appreciated after they go. And I think he'd be a really difficult player, even with the wealth, for them to replace. Players like that, like Casemiro when he came to Manchester United, the football intelligence, their understanding of what's required to make a team tick and make those around them better is a very understated asset in a time when we really sort of herald the spectacular. Mm. He, he is the glue. Yeah, and there's also the fact that like, as much as you can buy players and buy the best young talent, someone with the experience of Gundogan in a team like City who's been there for seven years, who's seen everyone come through the doors, who's like adjusted his play to players like Haaland coming in and what he requires, or if it's like a Jack Grealish or whoever it is, you also do need that stability in a team as well as the constant turnoff of the biggest and the brightest, which kind of leads quite well into the other thing that's in most of the papers today, as well as talking about City and if they're going to do the treble is Manchester United and where they are after yesterday. And I suppose, you know, a couple of people writing in the paper is that United don't really have to be ashamed of their performance yesterday. You know, they probably did all they could. But when you saw the likes of, you know, Veghorst coming on and like Jaden Sancho going off, who was completely invisible for most of the match once again, it's hard to see him sticking around Manchester United for much longer. And then the options that City had to come off the bench, they're just nowhere near the same place. Yeah. And you can talk about, I mean, Roy alluded to it with the discussion of, you know, City's the charges and where they are financially and how you know how they've got to this place and actually that's an interesting point about the papers is there's not much discussion in comparison to the Premier League win there was a lot more mention then of the charges that City were facing mm. in comparison to what's there now today it's it was all barely acclaimed. mentioned in yeah. most of the pieces that I yeah. read I haven't seen much mention of it at all and it's it's you know it is as you said acclaiming the performance and but you look at like these player ratings here in front of me you see like United are littered with fours and fives and City are up with sevens and eights and yeah do you I think, think that's a failure of our journalism that you know every single paper today has pretty extensive coverage of it but it's not it's not even a footnote really yeah I, I I think there has obviously been a lot of coverage of I think probably in the immediacy of that fixture it may not have featured as much I suspect it will become a very dominant team in the days ahead mm. both in the build up to the Champions League and particularly if they win and emulate United's treble. The fact that they've that a, a sports watching project is in danger of reducing the Premier League to to, to just the plaything of of a super wealthy club. Um, when you when you mentioned there the talk of what this means for Manchester United, I think it must be infinitely depressing for them to know that they probably have the right manager at, at last. They have made some really good, significant signings. They have Rashford playing like a world star and they are not in the same postcode as City and they're not going to be. Mm. You just, I know some people will react to that and say, well, it takes time. Guardiola's been there seven years. It took Klopp a number of years before his project came to fruition. I think United will continue to improve. I think Ten Hag has shown himself a manager of substance. But 
city's infinite resources just raised the bar to a point that the miracle was that Liverpool were able to go with them for so long. And you wonder now, I suppose the, the one hope for United, for Liverpool, for Arsenal, for anybody else hoping to compete is that Guardiola will move on. <laughs> maybe in a year, maybe in two years. I think his contract's two more years. But for so long as he stays there and for so long as they have state backing, they are, they are going to be invincible. That's a point. Henry Winter makes that point. United need three transfer windows to catch up, you know, to even catch up yeah. to where City are now. And then he also makes a point further on, like that while Ten Hag is, looks definitely like the right guy, you know, there's an element of uncertainty there with the ownership of the club. So if you don't know who owns the club, how much money you have available, how do you set up an investment strategy and, you know, a, a strategy whereby you know, you, I'm sure like all these clubs plan three and four transfer mm. windows in advance. They're not just planning for the next one. So how do you set that strategy in place if you don't know who's going to own the club or what kind of funds you're you going can't. to have available? You exactly. Know, it's impossible. So that, does that set them further back on the road to trying to catch up with City? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I don't want to pay, paint it as a bleak picture. As I say, I really adore watching City play. But at the same time, the, the notion of competition is inherent to competition. And that's why we were sort of thankful to Klopp and Liverpool for so many years for maybe disguising the reality of how great City's resources were by serial overachievement on Liverpool's behalf. We saw it at the start of this season with Arsenal and most neutrals attached themselves to Arsenal just because they represented hope, I think. And if you look at what PSG have done in France, they're just going to win the league. Um, if, you look, if you look at how Scottish football has been diminished, um, OK, Rangers had a period of dominance and it's old firm, but you know at the start of the season that it's not a true competition. And the Premier League's one strength, the one calling card has always been this team can win, this team could they overplay and maybe the the most the most competitive league in the world. But there was there was truth to the fact that lower teams regularly beat higher teams and the title was questionable at the very least. But City's dominance just doesn't look it's a vice grip that's gonna be very hard for any other team to loosen, I think. Yeah, I remember during COVID and it was like a Zoom Christmas party, which, you know, those fun things that we used to have to do and to make it more entertaining for ourselves, we did a bit of a quiz and I was working over at ESPN at the time and one of the ones was like, could you name every single winner of the league since it started up? And it was funny because the years that City won it were the years that everyone really struggled to remember Mm -hmm. that it was City because they just, they could remember what happened in the top four, they can remember who was relegated, if there was like a team that did particularly well and kind of finished a bit higher up the table than we could all that who won it and we were every time we got to that point we were like it has to be City and it was always City because as beautiful as the football is and as amazing as it is to watch someone like Haaland banging goal after goal it's becoming unremarkable which is sounds stupid to say but it kind of is it, 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 that, that is what happens in any walk of life I'm well well known as a Dublin football fan and I remember the euphoric feeling in 2011 just this one of the great days of your life when they won after 16 years and they went on to win eight All-Irelands and win six in a row and with the best will in the world you can't even as a fan of those teams get the same level of joy so obviously for a neutral seeing a team win again and again whether it's City or whether it's Dublin your natural 
your natural calling is to say, is there anyone who can come in and, and take them on? Mm. Well, at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's too many. Arsenal made a, a good ch- try of it this year, but I also don't think seems to take so much out of teams. That's the thing. It's like it's a monumental effort for like what Liverpool did for as long as they did. Yeah. It was a monumental effort to get there. And then that seems to really tell on a team like, look at, you know, what Leicester did to win and then where, where they, they come are back now. to. You know, how is it going to affect Arsenal to have done as much as they did for as long as they did? So, you know, can anybody keep that up in a sustained manner? Mm. Not unless you're Man City. To take on City, you've got to be running at a 100 metre pace over 5,000 metres and you just think that's not sustainable. Yeah. 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 I know that's one of the things I thought maybe might change the things this year in terms of City was to having the World Cup in the middle of the season and obviously having so many high class players you're going to have a higher amount of them actually competing at the World Cup and we saw affect a lot of other teams like towards the end of the season players just look like they're absolutely out on their feet but City they just seem to keep on they almost got better mm-hmm. in the second half and were able to push on and maybe that is the benefit of having you know any of their benches probably pretty close to a starting 11 player and every other team or at least definitely the top half probably didn't do any harm that Haaland wasn't at the World Cup <laughs> no probably didn't do any harm I mean we could have done with seeing him score a few goals that would have been interesting uh, and a few less in the Premier League if you're not a City supporter yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so and it's hard to know Ayrton Hag like where does he go what's he do now he clearly needs some sort of money coming into the club so that he can buy the sort of players that they need like Rashford's obviously playing really well he looked at Ericsson like was a really important player and really steadied things at United when they needed that but he was just absolutely wrecked by the end of the season which is understandable considering everything he's gone through and the amount of game time he's played as well they need a few more I suppose Casemiro style players to come in that have that guilted edge of just being very, very good at football and also very, very experienced. Well, they they spent a lot of money, questionably. Jaden Sancho, um, you mentioned a while ago, and he was anonymous yesterday. He's been, United have been very compassionate in the way they've dealt with him and they've tried many things to sort of bring him to physical and mental peak but I think there's patience running out now and I mean I I read a lot of the commentary this morning was that if anybody was likely to make a bid for him this summer they'd be happy to offload Um, other guys like like Anthony like Fred who a lot of money have been spent on okay Fred has probably had a better season than he had previously but still he's not remotely at the level you want if you're going to be competing with City on a regular basis and Anthony is one of these clearly very gifted if one-footed players but again is he an emotional leader is he a sort of is he one of those generals who will who will deliver for you rather than do the flash thing when things are going well City have so many bases covered that you they ask so many questions of you it's just a non-stop interrogation but they were able to play their, their number two goalkeeper mm. and then you have you know De Gea not absolutely shining for United and it just it shows up the, dif- the difference and the disparity between the sides doesn't it? Two words Vutvig Horst right? Yeah <laughs> Two goals in 30 games is it? Yeah. Like yeah I think so I think I read that somewhere in the papers today No it's I mean uh, you look at I suppose United teams of old and the heroes and the legends that came out of them and you have to say Rashford will probably make a claim for it especially if he stays around United for another couple of years but very very few players that have come through there in recent years 
Ronaldo for a time until it all went absolutely disastrous for them. <laughs> uh, um, one of the big things that has dominated the papers today as well is, of course, GA, and there's lots of talk about the games that happened over the weekend. But I suppose a common theme in a lot of the columnists, especially like former footballers talking about it, uh, and general columnists as well, is the fact of is the GA turning its fans against it by the fact that it's not an entertaining spectacle anymore. Um, Mark O'Shea was writing about it in the Mail on Sunday. Sweeney, Brawley, Spillane all also writing on it and a few more as well. found this conversation this week so interesting. Um, And it's funny because quite a lot of the columnists, they all offer, you know, their solutions. So, you know, Mark O'Shea talks about bringing in an offside rule. Brawley is like, get me on that rules committee. I'll change things up. These lads took three years to come up with the mark, but I'm going to, you know, revolutionise football in the way you know it, which is a very Brawley way of talking about things. But um, was there any of the ideas that I suppose were floated that kind of piqued your interest? From a personal point of view, I suppose it depends. We all view Gaelic football and the championship through different prisms. Um, For me, it's been one of the foundation stones of identity. I mentioned um, the Dublin fandom, and that came from my dad bringing me as a seven or eight-year-old to see Dublin and Kerry in in 1976. Um, So for me, it's always been far more than about the 70 minutes. It's a social and cultural occasion um, going to these championship games. Um, and I I was in, I was with a busload of people who went to Kilkenny for the Dublin Kildare game yesterday. And we were talking about this, that part of the attraction of going to games has always been you meet friends, you share old stories. Um, But now that's becoming the most important part because there was a sort of consensus amongst people and these are all GA loyalists. These are not contrarians. These are people who love the game, who love the occasion, who love the history. But the games are becoming increasingly less compelling, increasingly less electrifying, more formulaic. So I think anything that brought brought a bit of... the more spontaneity rather than a tactical obsession with possession and caution. Philly McMahon, who I love as a columnist, made a compelling case for the modern game in his column in the Indo yesterday. He, he was talking about, and he's right, that fitness levels and tactical awareness have never been at such an advanced stage. That's all true and it's fine. But there's still an element of the emperor's clothes if you're telling people that the game is more attractive now. Because everyone I talk to Everyone mm. is saying, I'm really struggling to watch the games at times. The laterals passing, the back and forth. Roscommon, tactical masterclass last week. Um, and their point after the five minutes possession has been much talked about. But it's still, it doesn't get you off the edge of your seat if, if you're watching. Um, one thing, Eamon Sweeney talks about the three-point line being introduced in basketball. And one of the joys I heard... James O'Donoghue on News Talk yesterday talking about where are the shooters gone in reference to the Cork and Kerry game. He's saying we ooh and ah about Clifford because he's doing something unique that used to be commonplace. He referenced Cork players like Colin Corkery and Daniel Goulding in the old Cork and Kerry rivalry. I would love to see a two-point zone in, in Gaelic football where guys are encouraged to shoot from 45 metres that maybe have it as the 45-metre line or some mm-hmm. sort of arc that you then reward adventure 
rather than the endless trying to work yeah. the ball inside. That's one I'd like. Because there's a there's an invisible line where you just you don't attempt a shot from outside this exactly. zone. And that's yeah. that's coached and players are taught that and you know what's the percentage uh, success rate from taking your shot from out here. I remember talking to a football manager about this and he was saying that he's actively encouraging his players to take shots from out there because well, okay, maybe you've only a 30% chance of success, but nobody's expecting it. So maybe you might draw the defence out. Maybe if you try and do these things, rather than sticking to the perceived wisdom of Mm. only taking your shot from inside this red zone, maybe you might get a different result you know and if you're the team that's prepared to do it and it, it always takes something like that doesn't it for some team to do something different to change things up but like as you said about Eamon Sweeney Eamon's talking about it and he's you know talking about how people describe games as grimly compelling or like a chess match and th- that's not, not how you want to, it to be described the game of football that is not what you want to hear and it's not what you want to watch mm. you want to watch you know two teams going at each other there was a bit of it I thought at the start of the Dublin Kildare game yesterday and it looked like you know these two teams are ready to go end to end here it lasted for about 10 minutes and things settled back to a bit more of a reality you know and a routine there's an issue where people I love Gaelic football as a sport and yet if you criticise there's now a tendency to say you're stuck in the past that you don't understand there's this intellectualisation of the argument where people who pine for something that's past are sort of Luddites who don't understand the sophisticated nature of the game now. And that has divided people into two camps. And I think that's actually a problem where we can't address. I absolutely understand strength and conditioning. I understand that these are fantastic athletes. I understand that they have skills that maybe weren't there before. They certainly have athleticism that wasn't there before. But still, from a spectator's point of view, what you need for spectacle is drama, adventure, spontaneous eruptions of brilliance and players not afraid to take risks as Orla said a lot of it is coached into players that you just can't do this you mm-hmm. can't do this and it, you're killing the individuality if you applied that to other sports imagine if we if we told Messi he couldn't dribble from 70 yards if we told Steph Curry he couldn't shoot from 30 feet if we told Tiger Woods, he couldn't, or Phil Mickelson, that they couldn't take a shot from the rough and try and go through pine trees to put it on the green at the 13th in, in Augusta. I think we're coaching an awful lot of the beauty out of the game. Mm. The, that was something that happened in, in rugby as well for a few years. You saw an awful lot of structure in the game until, you know, and they, I'm sure it'll happen, you know, something will happen in Gaelic football and things will change and it'll, you know, evolve as it always does. But you saw it in rugby where there was a lot of structure and players had a certain way of playing and a defined, you know, routine to what they were doing. And then uh, things change again and all of a sudden it becomes a bit more off the cuff. That's exciting. That's what you want to watch. And, you know, there was pieces talking about, um, a few pieces looking back at Leinster last weekend and talking about how that, the Leinster-La Rochelle final and the Ireland-France were um, Six Nations game were two outstanding games of rugby this year and you know we have we have evolved from a point where rugby was seen as turgid and 80 minutes of torture watching it because it was so prescribed mm. and everybody was sticking to what they had to do so you'd hope that maybe they will come up with some ideas like one of the ones that Joe Brawley mentions is uh, essentially the backcourt rule yeah. of mm. not going past halfway and also kicking out past the 45 which is one that you know a lot of people have talked about I, I was in a discussion about that during the week you know that's a that's that's a really a fairly simple one to police as well you would imagine you know you once you get past the halfway or 
wherever you want to mark it from that you can't go backwards but in Mark O'Shea's column he, t- he tells a good story about how in training uh, a drill that Paddy used to put them through where players weren't allowed to come back past the 45 yeah. so there was you know three defenders and three forwards up there and he said he got what was it Dara was slagging him he got taken for 2-6 by uh, Gooch in a training drill yeah. and he was distraught and was going home you know at the butt of Dara's jokes in the car yeah and everyone at. was laughing at him and he couldn't even muster a proper response yeah. so it was a uh, F off was all he could get to yeah. but then he said later on and then he was like Dara saw that his mood wasn't lifted and he came over and he was like listen that drill is for your benefit as much as it is for Gooch who else is going to be exposed to that on a Tuesday evening what else will you have to fear after that he pointed out mm. which is like it's, ra- it's true you know yeah. absolutely and it shows again how fear is the dominant narrative Mm. and can dictate how how teams approach games. I think it's important to have some perspective. There's still moments of great beauty in Gaelic football. We are witnessing a generational talent, maybe an all-time talent in David Clifford. And myself and Orla were talking outside. It is extraordinary how the pressure washes off the guy. The expectation on him every time he goes out. And he actually exceeds your expectations almost every Mm. time. We had the Shane Walsh-Clifford shootout in last year's all-Ireland, which was box office of the highest type. You have players, I, I was down in Cork when Jack McCaffrey made his comeback for Dublin and this electrifying moment when he gets the ball for the first time and takes off. Um, so the players are there to perform in a way that would captivate people, but the prevailing culture, as Orla was talking about in rugby, the prevailing culture at the moment is stymieing that creativity. Mm. Um, It means that we're seeing players at their athletic best, perhaps, at their physical best, but not showcasing their talents and skills. Yeah. No, it's interesting. There's so many different things that we could do. It's like the first time I've actually seen, there's about probably 20 different options that have been tabled by people. Um, And we'll look into a few more of those after this short break. You're very welcome back to Off the Ball on this Sunday. Kathleen McNamee here, and we are doing our Sunday paper review. And uh, just to give you a bit of a halftime football update, Mayo are six. Or sorry, that's they're not six four. They're seven four up against uh, Laos. There we were chatting to Colin Boyle uh, earlier on about that game. So Laos keeping themselves in at the moment. Mayo have mostly been ahead for the game by two or three points, so they're keeping a healthy distance. And you'd kind of imagine the second half will start and they'll take a bit more distance. Uh, but you never know. You never know. It's it's never over until that final whistle. Um, before the break, we were just chatting about GA and what it needs to do. And you know, Roy, you were saying that you would bring in that if you shoot from the 45 yard line or somewhere equivalent to that you get two points rather than one is there anything Orla that you would bring in considering all the options that there are across the papers today well I agree with um, not often I say it but I agree with Joe Brawley where <laughs> Joe mentions four things four rules kickouts beyond the 45 the goalkeeper can't accept a pass from an outfield player the ball can't be played back over the halfway line and no sweeper now I don't know how you police the no sweeper I was curious I would have liked to have read yeah. more about that because yeah. I was like I'd definitely uh, like to know how he plans to do that yeah, it would 
be like a tactical interpretation by the referee then of what a sweeper is and how they're conducting themselves. Slightly beyond the remit of the referee, I yeah. think. But I definitely think like the kickouts beyond the 45 and the uh, the backcourt rule, the no ball being played back over the halfway line would be interesting. And it'd be interesting to maybe trial them for a year and give them a proper go. I think one thing that you might learn looking back at COVID was that, you know, if you do something for a year, it's not the end of the world. We played games in closed stadiums and we did mm. things entirely differently. We had winter championships. We had all sorts of very strange things. So it might be the end of the world to actually try something like that. But that was Joe's pitch for getting on the um, the rules committee. Um, and Mark O'Shea's is, as we were talking about, that uh, you want to keep the number of players beyond the 45 uh, at a certain level and as you mentioned the um, the offside rule and you know you don't want to see the 15 players behind the ball and like for my sins I watched that spell of Dublin uh, of the Roscommon possession and you're just looking at this going how is this helping anybody you know it's not it's well, you're not finding yourself just screaming at the TV just being like someone shoot someone do something someone do something try even, and move up the pitch just yeah. don't give it back to the goalkeeper again or just don't <laughs> keep going backwards but you know do, do you bring in the backcourt rule and then do you then need a shot clock or that you know are you turning it into a different game you know maybe that's a step too far I don't know I don't know if a breaking point will be crowd reaction as in attendance is falling and ultimately the finances of the GA are dependent both on people paying through the gates and on sponsors and sponsors are very and acutely aware of how the market is reacting to their sponsorship so if you have a situation where attendances are falling as they have been at at some games for sure that money is the money that ultimately allows county teams to have their level of preparation and if there's a reaction from the GEA because the monies being generated are are diminishing that forces their hand almost to make Mm. changes to make the game more attractive to people to get them through the gates Yeah and one thing that came up when I was discussing this with some of the um my colleagues during the week was the tackle's an issue you know the tackle is an issue that needs to be resolved in football and we need to figure out what's going on there are times you're looking at a tackle going well was that a free or was it not a free and you know there's debate about what constitutes a free what constitutes a tackle like that surely needs to be cleared up and made a bit more clear because it's not something that can be surely the the idea of sport it should be easy to explain and coach and teach and that's not that's not something that you know Mm. makes the game any more um, attractive yeah I am glad that like the stuff in the papers this weekend has moved on a little bit from the whole narrative where it felt like people were almost given off to Roscommon for how they played and you're like they're going out they're going out to win of course they're going to do whatever they can do if it's terrible football it was within it was a tactical masterclass Mm. there's no question about that Um, and in fact if you look at what's happening now we should actually be excited about the football championship Orla and myself were talking outside I never recall a year where you can make a compelling case for any one of five or six teams simply because no team is stepping ahead. Clifford is keeping Kerry above water, it seems. Um, Dublin are largely living on muscle memory. Mayo and Galway have probably been visually the best sides so far. Roscommon at 33-1 to for the All-Ireland, and yet it would not be sensational if they were to reach a final. We're seeing Westmead win games. We're seeing Cork push Kerry... And yet we're looking at headlines as in 
the piece, Eamon's piece, football is in danger of death by boredom. No one goes to matches hoping to see blanket defence. It's indicative of where our mindset is around the game now. There's just this negativity that has taken hold both of the tactics and our perception of the game at the moment where hurling is getting all the positive publicity. Mm. Um, football's the dirt on the shoe at the moment for a lot of people. Yeah, well, Hurling's getting a lot of positive publicity, but there's also a lot of talk about rule changes there as well. And people, maybe probably it's less so rule changes, I suppose it's more like structural changes to the way the competition is actually run because you're getting these insane games. Of hurling. And actually, it, because the Hurling scores have been so high, it probably makes the football scores being that bit lower even more obvious. Mm, yeah, definitely. And th- you look at, like, I was watching Limerick last weekend. There was 60-plus scores in that game. I mean, it's it's an accounting exercise just to keep track of what's going yeah. on in the game, never mind anything else. That's the thing, I was watching it, and I, like, would keep forgetting who was up or who was down because it was just happening so fast, mm. and you're kind of looking at it and trying to calculate it in your head. Yeah, and yeah, like, and it's or, relentless. Or, can you put down your little thing a bit sooner where it says 23 points so I don't have to sit here and, and work it out? It yeah, well, the scores were just coming so thick fast it was they do and they just go from end to end and it you know it happens really quickly in hurling and yeah I mean it is more exciting and there's all the discussion about how the Munster hurling championship is so exciting but I saw somebody pointing out that you know there was great games taking place and and an awful lot of jeopardy in Leinster last weekend as well Mm. the great pity as we all know of hurling is that there's not more teams involved in him with the chance you know that it's it's just still that same core of the big sides and it's not it hasn't really you know for all the efforts it hasn't really caught on outside the big group of whatever six or eight yeah within that eight there is there is currently great competition and that's the reason the crowds are flocking to games I mean the we mythologise the the Munster Championship to the point that aggravates some people but the games this year have just been off the charts. I mean, watching as a neutral, you're breathless, you're absorbed. The skill levels are just ludicrous. We talk about Leinster. I mean, Wexford's victory last week over Kilkenny, really emotional, a powerhouse display by Lee Chin. Um, Westmead previously beating Wexford, which is perhaps a sign of, of advancement. Dublin going 12 up against Galway last week. Galway coming back and you're wondering, what does this mean for both teams? Um, the narrative in hurling at the moment is all resoundingly positive and I think Orla has just opened up a piece there that, that illustrates it where Tommy Conlon was talking about the weak Limerick mm. card last week with Munster which is the spiritual home or Limerick rather the spiritual home of Munster celebrating on Saturday a victory in Cape Town and then 44,000 people at the Gaelic grounds the next day in wonderful sunshine I actually saw um, a line from Declan Lynch in another another part of the forest this morning where he's talking about uh, a music show and just saying when the sun shines basically everything is is so much more appealing to the eye and that was that was a marvellous day these days of summer that live with you forever the sun always seems to shine on those days and maybe our memory plays tricks on us but um, (laughs) a day like that in um, in the Limerick game last week was just extraordinary I think there were a few people in the country who didn't want to be down in Limerick or around Tumman Park and the likes last week it was just epic to watch from afar so I can only imagine what it was like to actually be in the middle of it proper you know 
this is the stuff you tell your grandchildren about and annoy them about for years that you were there on the day. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what happened when you when you look at it and Tommy summed it all up beautifully there in the piece about how, you know, that was Saturday night and Sunday and they are you now he kind of makes a case about how it was Munster who were dominant in people's um, you know, hearts for a long time in that area and then as they started to come down in you know, in the in the hierarchy in rugby that it was Limerick Hurling came there to revive it and this maybe there's a, a fight for hearts and minds to be had because the, like 44,000 following them in the Gaelic grounds that's an awful lot of eyeballs mm. and you know you want to pull them back to rugby and Munster are doing everything that they can to, to bring them back but that Limerick team are just amazing to watch they really are and as you say like the fact that it was such a sunny day and you're looking at it on TV it just looked Superb. It was one of those days that you really want to be in the crowd. Yeah, and to have that loyalty as well to the teams in terms of it's one thing watching it as a neutral and it's great fun, but if you're there and that's your county and you're supporting them and you know things are on the edge in the way that they have been for Limerick over the last couple of days like even earlier when we were talking about Manchester City and their kind of run of incredible form I was talking to someone from Limerick just before the season started and he was like you hate saying it but it's losing some of its glow because you know you're getting Mm. used to it and he's like it's not that you would ever wish it away or anything but it's losing the glow and I was talking to the same guy after last weekend and he was like it's coming back the glow is coming back because there's that jeopardy yeah Yeah, exactly jeopardy is the word when you have that risk that it can all be taken away when suddenly victory is not guaranteed success is not guaranteed and the Limerick story this year where they lose Sean Finn probably the best defender in the game over the last three or four years where Keane Lynch a two time hurler of the year coming back from injury and not being his at that previous level this year where Garode Hegarty for a while was struggling for that form where he dominates and completely takes over a game where their backs are to the wall and yet they still found a way that real champion spirit the essence of greatness I suppose is how you perform when things are not going so well and they were able to find a way they were able to win and not just find a way but do it in absolutely thrilling circumstances but where we thought the championship was a coronation for Limerick three months ago there's now a real sense of every team remaining that we can be a major factor in this and that's that's the storyline you want coming into uh, All-Ireland quarterfinals and stuff like that Especially when we look at the GA and we're still it's at a very different stage at the moment the football side of things mm. where you have those five, six maybe even more teams who could possibly win it you know even earlier before you guys came on myself, John and Aidan were trying to work out who would be our tips to win the All-Ireland and that's great it's good to have that open play but also it's frustrating, I suppose, at this stage where you still feel like once it actually gets down to it, there's going to be the teams that you expect to pull away, pull away. And yeah, I mean, it's been great watching the hurling the last couple of weeks and seeing a team like Limerick struggle and see how like John Kiley deals with the, the media pressure around that, the local pressure. You know, he fr- has said pretty consistently since the start of the season, you know, nothing is guaranteed. I don't understand why people keep telling us it is and then when talking about Limerick you look at like say Munster's victory and how their year changed and it spent the first half of this year talking about how terrible they were and how this could be the worst season ever for them absolute disaster and then they come out with a trophy and Leinster come out with absolutely nothing well that is the thing they measure each other Munster and Leinster measure themselves relative to each other and anybody suggesting a month ago that 
Leinster would finish the season trophyless and Munster who went to South Africa was it in early April looking like they were fighting for their life in terms of qualifying for Europe next season mm. it was a huge crisis potentially engulfing and the response to be fair has been absolutely fantastic but Leinster who've been by far the leaders in excellence who have brought through all of these great players who backbone a Grand Slam winning team who have in Leo Cullen I think a really immense leader a very very bright guy but doesn't get so emotionally involved that he's not able to think coldly or, or that, he, that he's not able to well I suppose basically he always knows danger is afoot but he reacts very well yeah. to that but I'm actually just getting through in my ear that we have a little halftime report coming through from Colin Boyle that we need to throw to so Mayo are leading loud there seven points to four at McHale Park Colin Boyle is speaking to our reporter Oshin Langan there we will be back after this on some ads Welcome back to Hastings Insurance McHale Park. We're at halftime in this All-Ireland Series Group 1 Round 2 encounter. Mayo lead by three, seven points to four. Mayo would have wanted a strong start to this one, and they got one. They were three points to no score up, but they failed to score for the next 12 minutes. In that time, they did have a goal chance. James Callop making a good save. Uh, in between time, Loud climbed their way back into the match. Sam Mulroy has popped over a couple of frees. Kieran Downey has scored a mark. Connor Grimes has scored a point as well. He's had three or four shots. That was the only one that was successful for Mayo. Jack Carney has got a couple. Ryan O'Donoghue who scored a free and one from play. Jordan Flynn, Aidan O'Shea and goalkeeper Colm Reap also on the score sheet along with Stephen Cohen. The scores from Reap, Cohen and O'Shea all from frees. Former Mayo footballer Colin Boyle is watching this one with me. Colm, is pedestrian the word to use so far? Yeah, you would say so. Very, very pedestrian. A real lack of energy to the play. And the crowd here in McHale Park is very, very dead. Slow patches of play. But that's just the way, I suppose, Loud have set up here today. They're trying to frustrate Mayo. And in fairness to them, they are doing that. You mentioned about the start Mayo got. Like, Kevin McSaber, really happy with that. They came out of the blocks, won the throw-in, got a score straight away. Won the next couple of Loud kickouts, and they're three up in the first five minutes. And they only score four points in the next 32, 33 minutes of that half. Because Loud literally set their 14, 50 bodies inside that half. And Mayo found it really, really hard to break it down. Um, I think they've only got three scores from play. They, they've struggled really to navigate and get shots off. It's not like they've had loads of shots. I think they've only had nine or ten shots, two wides and one drop short. So they're finding it hard to get their shooters into the shooting positions. In fairness to Loud, they're, they're defending really well. They're staying in this game. Mayo have had a goal chance that really they should have done better on. David McBreen takes a shot on his left foot that he really should be hand-passing across to James Carr to tap in. So, look, overall, Loud to be really, really happy. Mickey Hart to be really, really happy with that half, especially after the, the start they got. I think for them there, you mentioned Conor Grimes. He's been really good. He's gotten an awful lot of ball. Anthony Williams and Dolan uh, McKinney coming from back there have caused all kinds of problems as well. So, Loud to be happy they're still in this game, but Kevin McStay will be looking for a lot more from Mayo in the second half. OK, for now, Colin Boyle, thank you very much. In the heat of Castlebar at half time it's Mayo 7 points Loud 4 points yeah so that was Cullen Boyle there and we will be hearing a bit more from him when that game finishes up uh, that was 7 points to 4 to Mayo at half time uh, also coming up a little bit later on we will be chatting to Shane Kern ahead of their uh, game Roscommon's game against Sligo and we will have Keith Tracy in to review a bit more of the FA Cup final um, that was obviously a 
one more step closer to the treble for Manchester City. Um, coming up a little bit later on, Nathan Murphy will also be swapping out for me. Uh, so he'll be taking you through all the final news stories of the day. And before that, we will also have the very end of our Sunday paper review, which uh, there's some great papers or great stories in the papers today. So definitely do get out and buy one if you haven't already. Uh, now uh, coming up, we have ads and news and then we will be back with Orla and Roy in studio. Hello and welcome back to Off The Wall. Kathy McNamee here and we are still on our Sunday paper review because there's just so much good content out there. Irish journalism is well and truly doing very, very well. Uh, and I'm saying that purely in a written capacity and not praising myself as now working in broadcast media, I swear. Um, when we were talking a little bit about it just before we went to the ad break and the news there, but the success that Munster had this season and that great piece um, about the joy that has been down in Limerick over the last week between Limerick and then also that URC trophy, which looks like it comes off a spaceship. Every time I see it, I'm like, it's like the aliens lost a little bit of one of their spaceships and some rugby person picked it up and they're like, this make a great trophy. It's funny, I was, one of the joys of going to a game in Kilkenny is meeting up with Mick Galway and uh, I was with him for a while yesterday and I was asking him, as a as a Munster legend and sort of as a guy who got so much joy out of 06 and 08 just after his retirement when they conquered Europe twice, how much last week meant to him. And he was absolutely elated to see that spaceship-shaped trophy um, <laughs> come back. He, he, he thinks in some ways it's almost as big as when, when they conquered Europe because they've been in such a valley period watching Leinster dominate that too. To make that statement, um, I think it was Tommy Conlon talked this morning about Keith Earls never having won a Heineken Cup and now to win this, he's actually won a trophy in Limerick. Keith Earls in his his autobiography talks about really admiring the Limerick hurlers and their brilliant athleticism and also envying them to see them in their hometown being able to lift a trophy. So I think as, as a launch pad for a second coming of Munster as a major force... There's nothing like victory to to get people back out. Um, I know Orla was talking earlier about Nice Rugby Club outside to me and the the amount of kids that they have there every week because they're seeing Ireland win Grand Slams and victory is the greatest recruiting agent of all in any sport, I think. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. That's uh, how you'll get the kids out there. And you'll see it now that it'll you know, it'll kick on again in Munster. And what's lovely about Munster is Finally, this season, to a large degree, we've seen the homegrown players and the young guys being given the chance and being given the opportunity. There's players from West Cork and, you know, outside the traditional areas of, you know, Limerick and Cork City. And that'll that'll definitely be a springboard for them. But Brendan Fanning does. He kind of charts the the road to recovery for Munster about how they they came back to um, to this position because they had been, you know, talking about Rob Penny and uh, Tony McGahan in those years where you were wondering where the heck they were going and what was happening with them and it seemed to take so much longer and you look back now and how long ago it was that they won in 2011 and it's taken them a long time to come around. Um, 
but definitely Graham Rowntree and you know there's a lot of credit given across papers to um, Prendergast and Leamy and, and their yeah. roles in what's happening down in Munster and that's that's that real Munster thing of you know just knowing what the province are about and, and what it means to them and they're guys who can you know who can instill that in the players that are there um, and the one interesting thing in Bernard Jackman's piece he talks about how um, it was a shock to hear that Dan Sheen and Hugo Keenan saying in the build up to the final that they haven't won a medal with Leinster which is interesting and you kind of look at that and think well I hope they're not like Keith Earls in a few year, more years time yeah. you know waiting I don't think they will be I think like as Bernard makes the point that Jacques Nienaber coming in is is something that Leinster really need into mm. the team and that might make the difference for, for next year but the discussion of how Leinster did it's uh, Shane McGrath touches on it as well and what that means for Ireland and what it means for Ireland's hopes going into the World Cup and with the World Cup squad being re- released this week and you know the we're starting the countdown to that now. I saw, I think Brendan pointed out that days, it's, it? it's 100 yeah. days now. So, you know, we'll be rolling straight from the Women's World Cup into yeah. the Rugby World Cup. Oh, even I was looking at the date today, 4th, and I think I fly out to Australia on July 9th and I was like, how has it yeah. come around so quickly? And then we were talking about Rugby World Cup fixtures as well. And I was like, how are they happening so quickly? These things were years away and now they're right on our it's door. It's a relentless sprint this summer. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, you're going to be, co- championship is going to roll into the World Cup like that first fixture is July 20 Mm -hmm. isn't it you know and you're going to have that just dominating things for a few weeks and then you'll you'll, in the meantime in August like Ireland are going to be building up to the Rugby World Cup and you know what the what the hopes are for that Rory Keane touches on it talking about it in the mail about like how there's been continual hype leading up to every World Cup and Mm -hmm. belief about where we are and then meeting with a crushing reality of where we actually are when we get to the World Cups and you know the hope is that that, that's not going to happen this time around Um, but Shane McGrath touches on the point of whether um, the power game is displayed against Leinster whether that has an impact on Ireland and is it something that Ireland need to worry about Mm. but I think one of the big differences is that you you know you have people coming in who who um, impact the game very differently for Ireland and you have Johnny Sexton back but one man who I think gets or deserves a lot more credit is Peter O'Mahony I think his leadership skills and his sort of uh, experience and now on the pitch just make a huge difference when it comes to Ireland I think uh, in the Indo yesterday or during the week Rory O'Connor gave Peter his Irish Rugby Player of the Year he said there are compelling claims for people like Quaylen Doris, for Mac Hansen, for Josh van der Fleer. But O'Mahony is just one of these people that you know you'd love to go to war behind. Absolutely. You just, I, I know we can sometimes resort to cliche, but even when you see him singing the national anthem, it mm. stirs something in you and you feel I can really relate to this guy. And he's not one of these fantastically gifted natural talents. He's a guy who's had to scrap and fight who's had to give everything of himself every time he performs to be of value to the teams that he performs with in, I suppose, a a Roy Keane-style way. And I think as supporters, we relate to people like that because they are not born with all the talents, but they've, they've made themselves indispensable. They've made themselves leaders by virtue of the type of people they are, the depth of their character as well as their athletic gifts. They're the sort of people that I really get a kick out of watching in sport. And I, I agree entirely. His value 
as a leader to any team he's involved with is is immense. Yeah, you'd wonder if Leinster had a player of his style, would that have helped them over the line against La Rochelle? Because I think the thing about Peter Mahoney is it's not always beautiful to watch or it's not always, you know, it's not him taking something beautifully cleanly. It's the passion. It's the grit. It's the fight. It's the seeing him down in the middle of something getting absolutely stuck in and roaring whenever his head pops back up because he knows he's gotten that important bit of space or he's gotten that important gain for Ireland. Yeah. And mean, He's the type of person you can see, you know, if a team concedes a try, he's the man who's going to be there dragging people in and knocking heads together and saying, right, here's what we're going to do mm. and this is how we're going to do it. And he's the type of person who just takes charge. He's that leader who will take control. And, you know, maybe that is to a degree what Leinster were lacking. There could have been cooler heads. There could have been decisions made differently towards the end of that game that would have changed things you know Conor Murray is another example of that Mm. people point out that maybe if Conor Murray was there steering that rather than Gibson Park that Conor Murray would have you know forced Ross Byrne into a position where he was going to take a drop goal or you know it's just they're the additions that make Ireland something more than um than Leinster and they're they're the very important ones that are going to I think going to be different they're going to make the difference There's a really interesting line again on Bernard Jackman who's always very very good and very perceptive um, talking about that very factor and he's talking about Sexton's retirement leaving a massive void particularly for Leinster but also for Ireland and he said um the lack of obvious leaders wasn't something that jumped out at me when I looked at the Leinster squad, even with Sexton injured. But I was interested to hear Dan Levy say in a podcast a few weeks ago that a lot of the boys are very quiet on and off the field. Being quiet doesn't make you a bad leader, but certainly the way the team reacted to pressure in the last four knockout games is a concern. The Hugo Keenan thing really jumped out at me. Here's this guy who's been at the very top of his game for the last three, four years. He's been an extraordinary addition to both Leinster and Ireland. And we just have this perception of Leinster as this trophy machine. Mm. And yet, deep into his 20s, he's he's trophyless. And it it brings home those narrow divides that are required to get a team over the line. Ask anybody who have been the dominant Irish rugby team over the last two, five, eight years, everybody says Leinster. So that two years without a trophy actually seems almost like a famine, given their qualities, given their talent, given that they have in every position, both on the field and off the field, they have exceptional people. But it shows with Munster as we said, what a guy like O'Mahony. And obviously there are so many dimensions. Bernard, uh, Brendan Fanning piece talks about how was Johan van Graan given a second contract extension offer when they were clearly going nowhere. He, he talks about how Graham Rowntree struggled at the start of the year. But a key factor was empowering coaches and particularly the Irish guys came in, Mike Prendergast, Dennis Leamy and the jobs they have done. And you just feel Munster are going back. We talked about tactical evolution, but certain basic things remain true in a lot of sports, particularly in rugby. And physicality and heart and sense of identity have always been at the core of the Munster story. And I think what they've achieved, those have been fundamentals as much as the tactical stuff that have enabled them get back to where they need to be. 
You think even like listening to a lot of the players speak after the win in the URC, that was the thing that a lot of them were pointing to. It wasn't necessarily the tactical shifts that happened or that, you know, they were making changes to their diets or the way they trained. Like I'm sure those things did come as they naturally do when a new coach comes in. But it was you got the real sense that they had the the legacy of Munster in their hearts and they had the fight and the that had been restored to the, the team in a way that just hasn't been there for the last couple of seasons at all. I think there's probably no team in Irish sport that the connection between audience and team is so fundamental to what they achieve. There was always a sense that Munster were a movement. I remember Keith Wood telling me a long time ago he was absolutely shattered one day in Tolman Park. He was down on the ground. It was 10 minutes to go. He had nothing left to give. And he just heard the cries of Munster, Munster. It was almost this primal chant. And it just suffused him with adrenaline that he never expected to have and that extra man we can overplay it like we overplay the the mythology of the Munster hurling but the reason these things exist as images is because there's substance to them I think and that has been a fundamental part of Munster and there was a disconnect between fans and team over a number of years there were falling attendances there wasn't the same passion at Tolman Park on match days but that has returned as well which is great to see Yeah definitely yeah, just give some quick updates from around the houses. So Mayo are on nine points. Lau, they're on seven points. That's after 46 minutes. Monaghan, 13 points to Clare's 111. So that's after 47 minutes. And uh, Clare are the All-Ireland Minor Hurling Championship. Final score there is 2.22 to Galway's 4.11. Uh, we'll have more updates on the GA throughout the rest of the afternoon as well. One of the other pieces I kind of wanted to highlight was, we were chatting about it a little bit earlier, was Paul Kimmage writing about the interview with David Corkery that was in, that was in the Irish Times yesterday? Yes. Irish yeah. Times yesterday yeah. with Dennis Welch. Yeah. Um, a great really really insightful piece and really I mean what he's gone through is absolutely horrendous and you wouldn't wish it on anyone and it's actually interesting because like for a lot of the start of Paul Kimmage's piece he's actually just quoting word for word what David Corkery has said in the Irish Times piece but um, I thought it was interesting he was talking about you know David Corkery was saying that he almost feels like he's been villainized since he brought this up and that, you know, a lot of people who used to be in his life, especially former players, have just disappeared, even though he's obviously going through some of the the toughest times of his life. Uh, and I thought Dennis Walsh also brought up the, or Paul Cambridge brought up the interesting question of, you know, a lot of the piece Corkery talked about the different cortisone injections and the painkillers he was taking. And he was like, there's a question to be asked here as well as responsibility in these situations. You know, we're talking about the build up to the World Cup and the excitement, but like seasons are getting more and more like there are more and more games or more and more tournaments. There's more expected of players. The players are getting bigger. And there has to be some sort of impact on people's bodies as much now as there was back when mm. there wasn't even professionalism in the game. And uh, I suppose questions to be asked if this sort of thing is still happening and what what can we do about it and what can we learn as well from people like David Corkery speaking out? Because you were making the point earlier Orla, when we were talking about it that, you know, for a 25-year-old, you might read David Corkery's story, but it's not going to impact you maybe in the same way it would if there was someone standing right in front of you and you could see the impact and you're still at that age where you have a certain level of I am invincible. 
Absolutely. And like if you look at like we're talking about leading up to the World Cup, I think the players have three weeks mm. in between domestic season finishing and then preparation beginning for the World Cup. Three weeks is not a lot of time for anybody's body to recover from what's gone on for an entire season of domestic rugby before you begin to prepare for that. And that's the point, you know, young men of in their 20s, are they going to, you know, read these testimonies and take them in and understand them? And a lot of people in David Corkery's position, and, you know, we've read Steve Thompson, you know, the players in England and so many of them discussing the, the dreadful things that are happening to them now and the diagnoses they're getting. A lot of them say if they'd known then, and they didn't know then, this was not... Mm clear and obvious to people playing rugby then that this these impacts and these concussions could do I mean it probably wasn't even called concussion you know they, knock they on didn't, the head yeah you know they, he got a knock throw a bucket of water over him and let him up like it's it's you know and you see now the, the result of that as David Corkery said they were the guinea pigs and we understand it now but I wonder do we understand it to the level that a 25 year old is going to say well this is going to impact on me when I'm 50 maybe this will cause me a problem that I won't be able to play with my kids or pick them up or you know I'll I'll be I'll be left with life changing injuries be they knee or hip injuries or something like that and a worse scenario of the early onset dementia or the CTE or all those other dreadful things that people are dealing with now you know so I do wonder whether people as much as somebody will say if I'd known then what I know now is that actually the case because you know there's the bravado of youth and that feeling of invincibility that everybody has that you kind of think well it's not going to happen to me and I'll be okay and that's so far down the road anyway it's quite hard to get your head around Yeah and then you, as well you look at the case say like Siobhan Cadigan in Scotland and everything that she's gone through and their family are going through now and that that's a very young player and that had serious things going on and it wasn't recognised even though as you said we're so much more more informed now and we've had these conversations a lot more consistently say over in the States with the NFL and even from that perspective you kind of want to scream at people and like take the piece by Dennis Walsh and just like push it into their faces and be like we don't you know the people that we're talking about now as heroes of Irish rugby we don't want to be sitting in 10 years down the line or it might not even be that long that's the mm-hmm. thing with a lot of these things and being like God was, was it all worth it because I think as much as we enjoy watching the games, I don't think anyone would say you, it's worth it. You can't you can't infuse wisdom into young people in terms of their life experiences oftentimes until they've actually been experienced. I think one of the most concerning parts of the whole story has been the way the response to Corkery speaking and sort of he's he's breached some law of omerta, it seems, and has been isolated by former friends as a consequence, which is outrageous when you think about it. That's the thing as well. We talk about you can't put that sense into younger people and sometimes they need to experience it firsthand for themselves. But this isn't just younger people as well. You know, these are big voices in the rugby world and people who do have the power to make changes if they want. And instead, it's almost like they're looking at him as if he's weak for the fact that this has happened. The notion that somebody is weak for talking out, that's the sort of stuff that existed around mental health for an awful lot of years and which was really, really self-destructive. I think the concern for a lot of people is they understand this is an existential question for rugby. And while huge improvements have and are being made, we're still kind of dancing in the dark in terms of where we'll be in 10, 15 years because you're only learning from players who are enduring things in the past and how their bodies are responding now 
the players of today in 10 years' time, the party line is that every bit of medical expertise is channeled to make sure they're as safe as possible. And I'm sure to a large degree that is true. But you cannot be involved in car crash situations every day you go to work. Every day may be an exaggeration, but constantly if you look at the amount of physical battering by these guys who are just such powerful athletes now and down the line you wonder. So silence is the very worst thing and criticise someone who has the courage to speak and raise their head above the parapet. That's almost as damning, if not more so, than the actual guinea pig stuff of 15, 20, 25 years ago. Because the awareness is vital, like it is, it, mm. it is that awareness, and you want it, you want p- kids to be aware of it. I was at a, a kids' school hurling match during the week, and one of the boys wasn't playing, and I asked him, "Was he okay?" You know, he was surprised he wasn't playing. And he said, "Oh, I've a concussion. I was playing football the other day, and." complete accident fell and just hit his head yeah. which but I happens, said well like, how are you feeling yeah. and he said oh I have a headache and I'm not allowed to play sports for two weeks and I can't look at screens and I can't do anything like that so at least he was aware of what the you know what he needs to do clearly his parents were aware of it whoever was involved in this in the situation at the time recognised that here's a child who needs to get checked out by a doctor and that's all to be welcomed so to damn somebody for coming forward and saying this is what I'm suffering as a result of which what is a brain injury that's what concussion is it's a brain injury and it's damage being inflicted on your brain so you know to to dismiss it is just dreadful it doesn't make any sense and like we had um, Eddie Dunbar on the show during the week on Off the Ball AM and he was talking about the fact he suffered a concussion again just an accident he fell over the front wheel of his bike whacked his head and he was saying himself that he didn't really have that much knowledge of concussion before it happened and it kept him out for nine months and he was like my mental health was all over the place you know because that's obviously one of the things that comes whenever you have it he's like I was getting consistent headaches I couldn't concentrate on anything I was basically close to giving up cycling and then eventually went to talk to someone and they were like have you been tested for a concussion? And he was like, no, should I have been? Or should I have been aware of this? And it, like, it, it's mental that in this day and age, we still have sports stars that d- don't have the resources around them to make sure that they are getting like that proper sort of help and that there's someone pushing them as well to be like, you need to get this checked out. And it's totally understandable that he didn't realise because mm. it, it needs to be talked about more and it needs to be flagged more. And hopefully, I mean, more pieces like this. Dennis Walsh is a great writer and has done a lot of work around this sort of thing. Hopefully we can keep bringing a bit of attention to it because um, it could very, I mean, it's already at crisis levels and it could very easily get even worse as time goes on. Um, which is a very cheery note for me to <laughs> line up some football scores for everyone if they want to hear about how what the latest is uh, from the football championship. So Mayo are 11 points up against Loud. They're 11-8 there, 55 minutes gone. Monaghan, one eight, or 18 points to Clare's 1-14-53 minutes gone there. Uh, down in Dr. Hyde Park, Roscommon are two points up against Sligo after 17 minutes. The score there was four points to two. In terms of the Telton Cup, uh, Longford and Carlo is all evens with five points to Carlo's 1-2. Wexford, two points. Leitrim, four points. Fermanagh, four points. Antrim, 
one point there um, and yeah as we said earlier Clare are the All-Ireland Minor Hurling Championship winners so fair play to them Is any other stories that particularly caught your eye today guys? I think the sorry We're <laughs> probably going to say the same thing Aiden We're O'Brien. talking about Aidan O'Brien uh, I think that I mean it der- deserves comment that it's his, his ninth derby and a lot of the the discussion in the papers is about you know what a feat it is for him mm. to have won nine. It was I was thinking about this yesterday. Like the Aidan O'Brien story itself is extraordinary, and to step back and take a look at the man's career, and I actually went and had a look yesterday at where it started for him in the nineties and his family as well. Like we all know now that Dunica and Joseph have you know launched their own training careers, but his wife Anne Marie mm. is an extraordinary woman. Anne Marie Crowley was champion national hunt trainer in yeah. her own right. It's it's extraordinary to to you know to think about what they both achieved. Aidan was still being crowned champion national hunt trainer when he had taken over the job on Bally Doyle. Like he's an extraordinary man, and he just I, I find him fascinating. I you know I'd love to hear. Um, I'd love to get. I don't know maybe. Paul Kimmage might be able to get a few things out yeah. of him but somebody to sit down and be able to draw some of the information out of him I just think what he's doing is is astonishing The people around him invariably refer to him as a genius mm. and it's not a word that's used as an exaggeration some of us who don't know him as well it's easy to sort of make a caricature of, of Aidan because he's He's not always as comfortable communicating and you see him after a race and the first thing you know is he's going to have the phone, phone next to the year <laughs> and he talk about the lads in Coolmore. But this guy is an absolute phenomenon. I mean, he's a miracle of longevity. His, his reign at Ballydoyle, the most high-pressurised job in the, in the sport and in the sporting world it would be up there, is, is now in its 27th year. We're talking Alex Ferguson duration, during which time he's produced 42 English classics classic winners um, after the race yesterday he kept talking about the horse Auguste Rodin as being unique and as um, as Lewis Porteous pointed out in a Racing Post piece this morning the unique factor in this is Aidan O'Brien I mean we use words like horse whisperer the, the whole family story I mean for Joseph and Dunica both to be champion jockey Joseph's tall enough to play basketball <laughs> and he was the champion flat jockey I ridiculous mean, it, it, it is ridiculous but we sort of like bravado and easy quotes from her from her sporting heroes Aidan's at his most comfortable at dawn in the in the jeep following these animals and he can see things that are just even people who've worked in racing all their lives just can't understand the depth of his connection with these animals he is no more than Willie Mullins over National Hunt an absolute phenomenon a freak a genius and someone we should celebrate to the highest end yeah, and I would definitely recommend, even if you're someone who maybe doesn't know all that much about him or hasn't been following his journey, there's a lot of very, very well-written pieces that no matter what you know, you get such a sense of the man and the sense of the career and, sense of the, as you said, sense of the entire family and what they have achieved. Um, Roy and Orla, thank you very much. This has been very, very enjoyable. It was lovely having you both here to look through the papers. Thank you. It's now giving me the impetus that now I want to sit down every single day and just go through every single paper with someone and have a big chat about it because it's very enjoyable. Um, so we are going to go to a quick ad break now and then we will be back after that with the latest from Dr. Hyde Park with Shane Curran and more GA reaction. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.